And I'm Drewby, and this week we're doing a case that's been requested for a very long time in this podcast, and that's the Sean DeShera case. And this is a very shocking case that comes out of Indiana, and it just goes to show that childhood abuse and jealousy just turns into terrible things. Yes, and again, this is a case that involves the abuse of a child, so content warning on that. But if you're listening on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe. We just crossed 1,700 subscribers. Thank you to everyone that's helped us out so far. Thank you. And if you subscribe and hit the bell notification, you'll be able to catch our episodes every Monday. And also, one more thing. Stickers. So, normally we announce this at the end of the episode, but I wanted everyone to see it. I, I think they're probably coming out backwards in this video. It's but okay. $1, paypal.me slash the misery machine. Patrons get them free. But they're very good stickers. They withstand the elements. We have them on our car, so get a sticker. So without further ado, the Shonda Share case. So before we start, there has been multiple pronunciations of the victim in question's name by her family and friends. So just keep that in mind. Hear Shanda. You also hear Shonda. I think I hear Shonda a little more often than I do Shanda from the family and friends, so I'm just going to go with that. But Shonda Renee Scherer was an American girl who was tortured and burned to death in Madison, Indiana by four teenage girls. She was 12 years old at the time of her death. The incident attracted international attention due to both the brutality of the murder and the young age of the perpetrators who were aged between 15 and 17 years old. The case was covered on national news and talk programs and has inspired a number of episodes on fictional crime shows. Shonda was born in Pineville, Kentucky on June 6, 1979 to Stephen Scherer and his wife Jacqueline. After Scherer's parents divorced, her mother remarried and the family moved to Louisville. There, Scherer attended 5th and 6th grade at St. Paul's School, where she was on the cheerleading volleyball and softball teams. When her mother divorced again, the family moved in June 1991 to New Albany, Indiana, and Cher enrolled in Hazelwood Middle School. Early in the school year, she transferred to Our Lady of Perpetual Help School, a Catholic school in New Albany, where she joined the girls' basketball team. So before we get into this next part, there's a lot of information on the perpetrators. This is not to take away from the victim. It's because there were four in total, and they all have detailed backstories right and if we saved this for the end a lot of things wouldn't make sense and you might not know who we're talking about yeah so i think it's important to say these things now just so you kind of understand where they came from this is not to garner sympathy for them it's just basically to understand the environment in which all of these people kind of lived in. The perpetrators kind of shows you what kind of place this was. So the ringleader of all of this, her name was Melinda Loveless, and she was born in New Albany on October 28th, 1975, and was the youngest of three daughters to Marjorie and Larry Loveless. Larry was drafted into the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War and was treated as a hero upon his return. Marjorie later described him as a sexual deviant who would wear her and her daughter's underwear and makeup and was incapable of staying monogamous, and had a mixture of jealousy and fascination with seeing her have sex with other men and women. His profession allowed him to work whenever was most convenient for him. In 1965, Larry became a probationary officer for the New Albany Police Department 
but was fired after eight months when he and his partner assaulted an African-American man whom Larry accused of sleeping with his wife. In 1988, Larry briefly worked as a mail carrier, but quit after three months and did very little work, having brought most of his mail home to destroy it. Marjorie had worked intermittently since 1974. When both parents were working, the family was financially well off, living in the upper middle class suburb of Floyd's Knobs, Indiana. Larry did not usually share his income with his family, and he was impulsive with his spending habits. So he would buy things like firearms, motorcycles, and cars. He filed for bankruptcy in 1980, and extended family members often described the loveless daughters as visiting their homes hungry, apparently not getting enough food at home. The loveless parents would often visit bars in Louisville where Larry would pretend to be a doctor or a dentist to introduce Marjorie as his girlfriends. He would also share her with some of his friends from work, which she found disgusting. During an orgy with another couple at their house, Marjorie tried to commit suicide, an act she would repeat several times throughout her daughter's childhoods. When Melinda was nine years old, Larry had Marjorie gang-raped after she tried to drown herself. After that incident, she refused to have sex with him for a month, until he raped her as their daughters overheard the event through a closed door. In the summer of 1986, after she would not let him go home with two women he met at a bar, Larry beat Marjorie so severely that she was hospitalized. He was convicted of battery. The extent of Larry's abuse of his daughters and other children is unclear. Various court testimonies claim that he fondled Melinda as an infant and molested Marjorie's 13-year-old sister early in the marriage, as well as molesting the girl's cousin Teddy from ages 10 to 14. Both older girls said he molested them, though Melinda did not admit this ever happened to her. She slept in bed with him until he abandoned his family when she was 14. In court, Teddy described an incident where Larry tied all three of the sisters up in a garage and raped them in succession. However, the sisters did not confirm this account. He would also embarrass his children by finding their underwear and smelling it in front of the other family members. For two years, beginning when Melinda was five, the family was deeply involved in the Graceland Baptist Church. Larry and Marjorie gave full confessions and renounced drinking and swinging when they were members. Larry became a Baptist lay preacher and Marjorie became a school nurse. The church later arranged for Melinda to be taken to a motel room with a 50-year-old man for a five-hour exorcism. Larry became a marriage counselor with the church and acquired a reputation for being too forward with women, eventually attempting to rape one of them. After that incident, the loveless parents left the church and returned to their former professions in drinking. In November of 1990, after Larry was caught spying on Melinda and a friend, Marjorie attacked him with a knife. He was sent to the hospital after he attempted to grab it. So while everything we found said that he was caught spying on Melinda and a friend, I'm assuming it was something else if just that spying alone provoked Marjorie to attack him with a I'm knife. I'm pretty sure he was masturbating that, through the window. That was my assumption too, but I couldn't find anything on this. If anyone knows anything different, leave a comment. After this attack, Marjorie attempted suicide again and her daughters called the authorities. After this incident, Larry filed for divorce from Marjorie and moved to Avon Park, Florida. Melinda felt crushed, especially when Larry remarried. He sent her letters for a while, playing on her emotions, but eventually severed all contact with her. So the next perpetrator, his name was Mary Laureen, Laurie, as we'll call her, Tackett, and she was born in Madison, Indiana on October 5th, 1974. Her mother was a fundamentalist Pentecostal Christian, and her father was a factory worker with two felony convictions in the 1960s. 
Tackett claimed that she was molested at least twice as a child between the ages of 5 and 12. In May 1989, her mother discovered that Tackett was changing into jeans at school and, after a confrontation that night, attempted to strangle her. Social workers became involved and Tackett's parents agreed to unannounced visits to ensure that the child abuse was not occurring. Tackett and her mother came into periodic conflict. At one point, her mother went to Hope Rippey's house. We'll learn who Hope Rippey is. After learning that Rippey's father had purchased a Ouija board for the girls, she demanded that the board be burnt and that the Rippey house be exercised. Tackett became increasingly rebellious after her 15th birthday and also became fascinated with the occult. She would often attempt to impress her friends by pretending to be possessed by the spirit of Diana the Vampire. Tackett began to engage in self-harm, especially after early 1991, where she began dating a girl who was involved in the practice. Her parents discovered the self-mutilation and checked her into a hospital on March 19th of 1991. She was prescribed an antidepressant and later released. Two days later, with her girlfriend and Tony Lawrence, Tackett cut her wrist so deeply that she was returned to the hospital. After treatment of her wound, she was admitted to the hospital psychiatric ward. She was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and confessed that she had experienced hallucinations since she was a young child. She was discharged on April 12th of that year. She then later dropped out of high school in September of 1991. Tackett stayed in Louisville in October 1991 to live with various friends. There she met Loveless. The two became friends in late November. In December, Tackett moved back to Madison on the promise that her father would buy her a car. She still spent most of her time in Louisville and New Albany, and by December spent most of it with Loveless. So the third one is Hope Anna Rippey. She was born in Madison on June 9th, 1976. Her father was an engineer at a power plant. Her parents divorced in February of 1984, and she moved in with her mother and siblings to Quincy, Michigan for three years. She claimed that living with her family in Michigan was somewhat turbulent. Her parents resumed their relationship in Madison in 1987. She was reunited with friends Tackett and Tony Lawrence, whom she had known since childhood, although her parents saw Tackett as a bad influence to their daughter. As with the other girls, Rippy began to self-harm at age 15. So Tony Lawrence, whom we've mentioned a few times, was born in Madison in February of 1976. Her father was a boilermaker. She was close friends with Rippy from childhood. She was abused by a relative at age 9 and was raped by a teenage boy at 14, although the police were only able to issue an order for the boy to keep away from Lawrence. I've heard that happening before. She went into counseling after the incident but did not follow through. She became promiscuous, began to self-harm, and attempted suicide in 8th grade. So now that we know the four perpetrators, basically here are the incidents leading up to what had happened. So in 1990, 14-year-old Loveless began dating another girl named Amanda Heverin. After Loveless's father left the family and her mother remarried, Loveless behaved erratically. She got into fights at school and complained of depression, resulting in her professional counseling. In March 1991, Loveless disclosed her lesbian orientation to her mother, who was initially furious but eventually accepted it. As the years progressed, Loveless' relationship with Heverin deteriorated. I think a lot of the girls were roughly the same age. When we get to the portion about Sharer and Heverin, I do know, I believe there's, there's an a, age difference there. There was an age difference there. However, I believe in the Dr. Phil episode, because all this is on Dr. Phil too. Yeah. I, I don't states, suggest watching it no, unless it you want to be furious. It's terrible. horrible. I hate Dr. Phil is a worm. Dr. Phil is scum anyways. So she had stated that Sharer was in seventh grade and she, Heverin, was in eighth grade when they met, but something makes me think that Heverin probably stayed back when was, was a little bit older. Because wow, I thought in Dr. Phil they said 
Heverin was 17 and Cher was 12 or something like that or 14, something like of that nature. And that was the first time I had heard that in Dr. Phil, but we'll get into it from here. So Heverin and Shonda Cher met early in the fall semester at Hazelwood Junior High when they got into a fight. However, they became friends while in detention and later exchanged romantic letters. Loveless immediately grew jealous of Heverin and Cher's relationship. In early October of 1991, Heverin and Cher attended a school dance where Loveless found and confronted them. Although Heverin and Loveless had never formally ended their relationship, Loveless started to date an older girl. I'm not sure how much older, but it was somebody different. I don't have a name on that. So I did a little bit of research here when you were reading, and Amanda Heverin was 14 years old when she was dating Shonda, who was 12. Okay. So it was a two-year age gap. Okay. So what they said about 17 and 12 on Dr. Phil, shame on Dr. Phil for that shit. Yeah. The thing that really, really bothered me about that is Shonda's mother kept calling Amanda a child molester. And I really think it was just because she didn't want to accept that her daughter was bisexual. Yeah. And she just was blaming Heverin for the murder. And we, we can go into some theories, but the whole thing with Dr. Phil and the family calling Heverin a child molester, 14 years old and 12 years old, I don't think that qualifies at all. No, they're both middle schoolers. No, they're both going to school at the same time. It's not like this is somebody in high school or out of high school with somebody in junior high or younger. It's not like that at all. Like if you're in the same grade or a grade, behind it just doesn't make sense to me no i really do think it was because they didn't like that she was with a girl but anyway after heverin and Cher attended a festival together in late october loveless began to discuss killing Cher and threatened her in public concerned about the effects of their daughter's relationship with heverin Cher's parents arranged for her to transfer to a catholic school in late november heverin states that she gave letters loveless sent her containing death threats towards Cher to a youth prosecutor but the youth prosecutor never did anything about it as far as she knew Allegedly, these are her claims. We don't have any other information on that. That's all from Heverin herself. So on the night of January 10th, 1992, Lawrence, age 15 at the time, Rippy, age 15 at the time, Tackett, age 17, drove in Tackett's car, Tackett was driving, from Madison to Loveless's house in New Albany. Lawrence, while a friend of Tackett, had not previously met Loveless, who was age 16 at this time. Upon arrival, they borrowed some clothes from Loveless, and she showed them a knife, telling them that she was going to scare Shonda Sharer with it. While Tackett and Lawrence had never met Sharer prior to that night, Tackett had already known of the plan to intimidate the 12-year-old girl. Loveless explained to the two other girls that she disliked Sharer for being a copycat and for stealing her girlfriend, Amanda Heverin, even though I don't believe they were currently dating at the time. Tackett let Rippy drive the four girls to Jeffersonville, where Sharer stayed with her father on the weekend, stopping at a McDonald's restaurant en route to ask for directions. They arrived at Sharer's house shortly before dark. Loveless instructed Rippy and Lawrence to go to the door and introduce themselves as friends of Heverin, then invite Sharer to come with them to see Heverin, who was waiting for them at a place called called the Witch's Castle, or Mistletoe Falls, a ruined stone house located on an isolated hill overlooking the Ohio River. Cher said that she could not go because her parents were awake, and she told the girls to come back around midnight, which was a few hours later. Loveless was angry at first, but Rippy and Lawrence assured her about returning for Cher later. The four girls crossed the river to Louisville and attended a punk rock show by the band Sunspring at the Audubon Skate Park near Interstate 65. 
Lawrence and Rippy quickly lost interest in the music and went to the parking lot outside where they engaged in sexual activities with two boys in Tackett's car. Eventually, the four girls left for Cher's house. During the ride, Loveless said that she could not wait to kill Cher. However, Loveless also said she just intended to use the knife to frighten her. When they arrived at Cher's house at 12.30 a.m., Lawrence refused to retrieve Cher, so Tackett and Rippy went to the door. Loveless hid under a blanket in the back seat of the car with the knife. Rippy told Cher that Heaven was still at Witch's Castle. Cher was reluctant to go with them, but agreed after changing her clothes. As they got in the car, Rippy began questioning Cher about her relationship with Heaven. Loveless then sprang out of the back seat and put the knife to Cher's throat and began interrogating her about her sexual relationship with Heaven. They drove towards Utica and the Witch's Castle. Tackett told the girls that a local legend said that the house was once owned by nine witches and that townspeople burned down the house to get rid of the witches. At the witch's castle, they took a sobbing share inside and bound her arms and legs with rope. There, Loveless taunted that she had pretty hair and wondered how pretty she would look if it were all cut off, which frightened Cher even more. Loveless began taking off Cher's rings and handing each to the girls. At some point, Rippy had taken Cher's Mickey Mouse watch and danced to the tune that it played. Tacker further taunted Cher, claiming that the witch's castle was filled with human remains and Cher would be next. To further threaten Cher, Tackett then retrieved a shirt with a smiley face design from out of the car and lit it on fire, but immediately feared that the fire would be spotted by passing cars, so the girls left with Cher. During the car ride, Cher began begging them to take her home. Loveless ordered Cher to take off her bra, which she then handed over to Rippy, who slid off her own bra and replaced it with Cher's while steering the car. I, I don't understand the purpose of this. I don't know. Maybe they were just being stupid. I mean, of course they were being stupid. They became lost, so they stopped at a gas station and covered Cher in a blanket. While Tackett went inside for directions, Lawrence called the boy she knew in Louisville and chatted for several minutes to ease her worries, but did not mention Cher's abduction. What a weird time back then where you could just randomly call someone at night on a payphone and they would pick up and you would actually talk. People don't do that now. I mean, people had uh, private lines. I remember like friends in high school had private lines to their own room. My like, sister had lines. one. I didn't. And she was younger than me and she yeah. had her own private line. I didn't have anything like that either. They returned to the car but became lost again. And so they pulled up to another gas station. There, Lawrence and Rippy spotted a couple of boys and talked to them before, once again, getting back into the car and leaving, arriving sometime later at the edge of the woods near Tackett's home in Madison. Tackett led them to a dark garbage dump off a logging road in a densely forested area. Lawrence and Rippy were frightened and stayed in the car. Loveless and Tackett made Cher strip naked, then Loveless beat Cher with her fists. Next, Loveless repeatedly slammed Cher's face into her knee, which cut Cher's mouth on her own braces. Loveless tried to slash Cher's throat, but the knife was too dull. Rippy came out of the car to hold down Cher. Loveless and Tackett took turns stabbing Cher in the chest. They then strangled Cher with a rope until she was unconscious, placed her in the trunk of the car, and told the other girls that Cher was dead. The girls drove to Tackett's nearby home and went inside to drink soda and clean themselves off. When they heard Cher screaming in the trunk, Tackett went out with a parry knife and stabbed her several more times, coming back a few minutes later covered with blood. After she washed, Tackett told the girls' futures with her rune stones. Basically like rune stone. It's just a form of divination. Yeah, mostly practiced by pagan religions. At 2.30 a.m., Lawrence and Rippy stayed behind as Tackett and Loveless went country cruising, as they called it, driving to the nearby town of Canaan. 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 I've heard both, depending on the area. Cher continued to make crying and gurgling noises, so Tackett stopped the car. 
When they opened the trunk, Cher sat up, covered in blood with her eyes rolled back in her head, but she was unable to speak. So Tackett beat her with a tire iron until she was silent and then told Loveless to smell it. Loveless and Tackett returned to Tackett's house just before daybreak to clean up again. Rippy asked about Cher, and Tackett laughingly described the torture. The conversation woke up Tackett's mother, who yelled at her daughter for being out late and bringing home the girls, so Tackett agreed to take them home. She drove to a burn pile, where they opened the trunk to stare at Cher. Lawrence refused. Rippy sprayed Cher with Windex and then taunted, You're not looking so hot now, are you? The girls drove to a gas station near Madison Consolidated High School and pumped some gas into the car, but after buying a two-liter bottle of Pepsi poured that out and filled it with gasoline. They drove north of Madison past Jefferson Proving Ground to Lemon Road off of U.S. Route 421, a place known to Rippy. Lawrence remained in the car while Tackett and Rippy wrapped Cher, who was still alive, in a blanket and carried her to a field by the Gravel County Road. Tackett made Rippy pour gasoline on Cher and then they set her on fire. Loveless was not convinced Cher was dead, so they returned a few minutes later to pour the rest of the gasoline on her burning body. Just to kind of give a little perspective here, something that I had learned watching some videos on this, Cher was not a very big girl. No, she was She was like 70 tiny. pounds. Yeah. So they could really do whatever they wanted with her. Sick of the boring ghost stories from big name creators? Well, you're in luck. It's scary time. Lock your doors, check under the bed, turn on a nightlight because it's time for the scariest stories, history, and conversations ever heard. Each week, an independent creator tells you about the paranormal, ghosts, monsters, hauntings, and more. Best of all, if you like the creator, you can follow them for more great content. What do you listen to between episodes of The Misery Machine? How about a scary episode from another indie creator? With Scary Time, it's spooky season all year round. Check out Scary Time via the link in our show notes. If you dare. So after this, after torturing and setting fire to this poor girl, they had the appetite to go to McDonald's afterwards at 9.30 for breakfast despite being up all night, and they laughed about Cher's body looking like one of the sausages they were eating, allegedly. I don't know which girl said this. Lawrence then phoned a friend and told her about the murder. Tackett then dropped off Lawrence and Rippy at their homes and finally returned to her own home with Loveless. She told Heverin that they had killed Sharer and arranged to pick up Heverin later that day, allegedly. A friend of Loveless's, Crystal Wathen, came over to Loveless's house and they told her what had happened. Then the three girls drove to pick up Heverin and then take her back to Loveless's house where they told Heverin the story. Both Heverin and Wathen were reluctant to believe the story until Tackett showed them the trunk of her car with Cher's bloody handprints and socks still present. Heverin was horrified and asked to be taken home. When they pulled up in front of her house, Loveless kissed Heverin, told her that she loved her, and pleaded with her not to tell anyone. Heverin promised that she would not before entering her house. Later on the morning of January 11th, 1992, two brothers from Canaan were driving towards Jefferson Proving Ground to go hunting when they noticed a body on the side of the road. They called the police at 10.55 a.m. and were asked to return to the corpse. David Cam, who was later acquitted of his own family's murders, was one of the responding officers. I hadn't heard of this person no. before. And it's very interesting because 
when you do research on stuff like this, you have other podcasts you can listen to, articles you can find online, and then there's a lot of the investigation discovery type Which shows. Which tend to have a bit of sensationalism, So we were... and they'll add stuff that may or may not be true. So this story is actually featured on one of them, Deadly Women, and it's the Spree Killer episode. And what's interesting is they said some old war veteran had found her on the side of the road who was used to seeing burned bodies. But everything else said it was two brothers. Yeah. So, it, so it's very interesting, the conflicting information that you will find when researching I, true crime cases. I, I can't believe they're allowed to do that, just make up stuff like that. Like it's when we, ridiculous. Like when we did Catherine Foster and all we had was that one investigation discovery episode. Which and, I actually had to buy and, and because a, it wasn't available on Prime. And a lot of that had information there that allegedly wasn't true. They had changed all the names. They had added stuff to sensationalize it. And the only reason that I found out that it wasn't true is I had I had to work that morning. And I went to see if there were any podcasts that had covered her that I could just like listen to to kind of brush up before we recorded that afternoon. And lo and behold, I had found one that like knew the case very well that were local. Wow. And they had changed all the names. I had to like sit and rush to change all the names and get all the false info out that I had wow, from watching it's, that. It's a really good find. That show. So Jefferson County Sheriff Buck Shipley and detectives began an investigation collecting forensic evidence at the scene. They initially suspected a drug deal gone wrong and did not believe the crime had been committed by locals. And I mean, with something like that, I can understand why that was their initial assumption. Shara's father, Stephen, at this point noticed his daughter was nowhere to be found early on January 11th. After phoning neighbors and friends all morning, he called his former wife, which is Shara's mother, at 1.45 p.m. They met and filed a missing persons report with the Clark County Sheriff. At 8.20 p.m., a hysterical Lawrence and Rippy went into the Jefferson County Sheriff's office with their parents. They both gave very rambling statements, identifying the victim as Shonda, naming the two other girls involved as best as they could, and describing the main events of the previous night. Shipley contacted Clark County Sheriff's and was finally able to match the body to Sheriff's missing persons report. Detectives obtained dental records that positively identified Sheriff's the victim. Loveless and Tackett were arrested on January 12th. The bulk of the evidence for the arrest warrant was Lawrence and Rippey's statements. The prosecution immediately declared its attention to try both Loveless and Tackett as adults. I believe all four got yes. tried as adults. For several months, the prosecutors and defense attorneys did not release any information about the case, giving the news media only statements by Lawrence and Rippey. As we stated, all four girls were charged as adults. To avoid the death penalty, the girls accepted plea bargains. All four of them had troubled backgrounds with claims of physical or sexual abuse committed by a parent or another adult. Lawrence, Rippey, and Tackett all had histories of self-harming behavior. Tackett was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and suffering from hallucinations. Loveless, often described as the ringleader in the attack, had the most extensive history of abuse and mental health issues. Tackett and Loveless were sentenced to 60 years in the Indiana women's prison in Indianapolis. Tackett was released in 2018 on good behavior, serving probation for one year. Loveless was released in 2019. Yeah, everybody is out now. Rippy was sentenced to 60 years with 10 years suspended for mitigating circumstances, plus 10 years of medium supervision probation. It sounded like she got a worse sentence than the actual people that did the killing. On appeal, the judge reduced the sentence to 35 years. I feel disgusted reading this. In exchange for cooperation, 
Lawrence was allowed to plead guilty to one count of criminal confinement and was sentenced to the maximum of 20 years. She came along with it, sure, but she didn't even touch Sharer. She didn't do anything to her. And she immediately reported, this is why if you're a witness to something like this, don't go in to the cops with just your statement. Go in there with a lawyer, because I guarantee if she had gone in with a lawyer, she would not have done any jail time. And you can argue whether she should or should not. I don't think she should have. I don't think she should have either, because she didn't do anything and she thought this was going to be a joke. And I understand you kind of know there's some hazing going to be there and that's messed up. I completely agree. But should you be serving 20 years for something you didn't even know was going to happen that you willingly did not take part of? So the hard part about this is, and I think this is where people would, will disagree and kind of where I feel a little gray on the area, is they stopped several times at gas stations. There were many, many, many times she could have went in the gas station, called the police and saved Cher probably. It's possible. But would anyone believe them? Hey, my friends are trying to kill this girl and you're all just a bunch of 14-year-olds, would people take you seriously then? Maybe some would, but I think a lot of people would just be, there's just kids just being kids. The thing about it is, and like, obviously I don't have the case file here, but I think that might be some of the mitigating circumstances of this. You know, as we stated at one point, Rippy and Lawrence got dropped off over at Tackett's home and Tackett and Loveless went back out and did more of the abuse. So at any point where they were alone over at Tackett's home, they could have told a parent, they could have called the police. There was stuff that could have been done. They could. I mean, they still went that day, the same day it happened. After she was dead. Yeah, after she was dead. I mean, by the time she set on fire, she's already dead at that point. They went back to pour the rest of the gasoline on her, is my understanding. Well, there was some, some evidence from the coroner that there was soot in her lungs, so she was burned alive. Yes, that's true. And even Shonda's own mother did not know that until far later. The police didn't tell her that. She found, found on TV. Yeah, she found out on TV. Just how horrible is that? And I can get into like how just terrible this is for the family and stuff. Just there's strong culpability, in my opinion, for the other three girls. Hope Rippy talks about how she took part in it because she was worried she would get killed if she didn't. And I do understand that to an extent. But some of it really reads to me like Rippy enjoyed some of this where Lawrence was truly terrified. So yeah, like she sprayed Windux on her because she wanted to participate in some way, but didn't actually want to issue any sort of killing blow. Yeah, they mentioned that on investigation discovery. And I think in an interview with Rippy, she mentions that too. But did Lawrence do the full 20 years? I don't believe so. Because I, I can't read when she got out. I would hope that she got out earlier than the rest of them. But I don't feel like she justice She did nine was, years. She did nine years. She did okay. nine years. I just don't feel justice was served with Lawrence. I really don't. I think that was mishandled. And I think just lawyering up would be different. And why am I stuck on this? Well, look at the message it sends. She did the right thing and reported this once she was free of any possible danger from the other three. This is my opinion. And she gets nine years in prison for it. Since the 20 serves nine. That's a huge chunk of your life. Had she not said anything... Had they all stayed quiet, this might not have ever come out. This might have been one of those small town covered up things that Yergi and I so often cover here in the state of Maine. The thing was, though, they all just wouldn't shut up about it. Right. Right. And so maybe it would have come out eventually or maybe it would just been like one of those things that are rumors and just never gets prosecuted because the, the body's burnt. 
the only thing that would stop that is if they found the trunk of her car and searched it. But I think there would have been quite a bit of red tape before these girls got prosecuted had no one said anything. I mean, these days and age, they would be caught very quickly. You know, the amount of times they went to gas stations to get gas and... Oh, yeah, there'd be cameras and all that. Not to mention their positioning on their cell phones. Like, that stuff's in there. But back then, I think it would take a bit of time. For sure. And I mean, good on them for going in there and confessing. And again, I do feel like Hope Rippy is more responsible than she lets on. But Lawrence, mm, I have a hard time looking at her as I do the other three and especially <clears throat> Loveless and Tack. Personally, I think Lawrence should have went to a juvenile facility until her 18th birthday. I think that would have been fine. I think that would have been fine. But all four were tried as an adult. And if you think about it, Lawrence was a witness, just a witness and was tried as an adult at age 15, I think. She was 15 or 16. Yeah, she was 15 or 16. It was Tackett that was 17. Yes. She was the oldest. With that out of the way, in October 2007, Loveless's attorney Mark Small requested a hearing to argue for his client's release. He said that Loveless had been, quote, profoundly retarded, end quote, by childhood abuse. That's his words, not ours. Yes, that that was on record his words and his argument. Moreover, she had not been represented competently by counsel during her sentencing, which caused her to accept a plea bargain in the face of exaggerated claims about her chances of receiving the death penalty. Small also argued that Loveless, who was 16 years old when she signed the plea agreement, was too young to enter into a contract in the state of Indiana without consent from a parent or guardian, which had not been obtained. If the judge accepted these arguments, Loveless could have been retried or released outright. However, the judge did not accept it, because in January 8th, of 2008. Loveless's request was rejected by Jefferson Circuit Judge Ted Todd. Ted Todd. Ted Todd. Instead, not Ted Talk, Ted Todd. Instead, Loveless would be eligible for parole in 15 years, thus maintaining the original guilty plea. On November 14th of the same year, Loveless's appeal was denied by Indiana Court of Appeals, upholding Judge Todd's ruling. Small stated that he would seek to have jurisdiction over the case moved to the Indiana Supreme Court. During Loveless's sentencing hearing, extensive open court testimony revealed that her father, Larry, had abused his wife, his daughters, and other children. Consequently, he was arrested in February 1993 on charges of rape, sodomy, and sexual battery. Most of the crimes occurred from 1968 to 1977. Larry remained in prison for over two years awaiting trial. However, a judge eventually ruled that all charges except for one count of sexual battery had been dropped due to the statute of limitations, which was five years in Indiana. If you're listening and you're from Indiana, please let me know if that's changed because five years seems a little small for this day and age. We have a patron there. We can ask her. Yes. Yes, we will. So Loveless pled guilty to one count of sexual battery. He received a sentence of time served and was released in June 1995. A few weeks following Following his release, Larry unsuccessfully sued the Floyd County Jail for $39 million <laughs> in federal court, alleging oh, he had suffered cruel and unusual punishment during his two-year incarceration. Among his complaints were that he was not allowed to sleep in his bed during the day or read the newspaper. Scherer's father, Stephen Scherer, this is very sad, died of alcoholism in 2005 at the age of 53. In an interview with Scherer's mother, Jacqueline Vaught, Vaught stated that Cher's father was so destroyed by his daughter's murder that he, quote, did everything he could do to kill himself besides put a gun to his head, end quote, and that he had drank himself to death. She later said, quote, that that man definitely died from a broken heart. 
end quote. The Shonda Share Scholarship Fund was established in January of 2009. The fund planned to provide scholarships for two students per year to the Prosser School of Technology in New Albany, one scholarship to a student who is continuing his or her education, and the other scholarship to a student who is beginning his or her career and must buy tools and other work equipment. By November 2018, Shanda's mother had stated that the scholarship fund had been depleted and is no longer accepting donations. So I'm going to I'm going to say this and then we're going to talk about some of the Dr. Phil stuff a little bit more and just why this is just so off kilter to me. In 2012, Shara's mother made her first contact with Melinda Lovelace since the trials, although indirectly. Can you look up? when that Dr. Phil episode was. Okay. She donated a dog named Angel in Shonda's name to Loveless to train for the Indiana Canine Assistance Network program, which provides service pets to people with disabilities. Loveless now trains dogs for the program and has for several years as of 2012. Vought reported that she had endured criticism over the decision, but defends it saying, quote, it's my choice to make. She's my child, meaning Shonda, And if you don't let good things come from bad things, nothing gets better. And I know what my child would want. My child would want this, end quote. She stated that she hoped to donate a dog every year in honor of Shonda. And the Dr. Phil episode was taped in 2011. Okay. All right. I figured this was a lot earlier, but okay. All right. So I've got some stuff with this. So get some stuff to talk about. If you about, watch that Dr. Phil episode, don't, but if you do, Shara's mother rips into Hope Rippy like bad. As does the sister. And you know, I don't blame them for that. They also blame. Amanda Heverin, one, they call her a child molester, and two, they say that she should be in jail or in prison like the rest of them. She claimed that Amanda Heverin was also the cause of her daughter's death, which I firmly disagree with. Yeah, they were like going on about, oh, if you would just go away, that this wouldn't happen. Yeah, literally said, if you didn't come into the picture my daughter would still be alive. And now listen, a grieving mother, I totally get where this is coming from. I don't fault the mother for saying this. Who I fault is Dr. Phil for one, backing that up and two, allowing that to happen, exploiting that narrative And Dr. For Phil ratings. was really, really, really like coming at Amanda Heverin. Yeah, for basically said she was a child molester and basically tried to paint her in the light that she knew this all along and was complicit in it. That's, so, I, oh my God, I, I hate Dr. Phil so much. He's just an absolutely terrible, just charlatan of a person that preys on the misery of exploited families. Like, I just, it's awful. Now, if, regarding Shara's mother, to see that vitriol in 2011 towards Rippy, who I, I find her complicit, but didn't do the same type of abuse that Loveless and Tackett did. But she even said that Loveless was an evil person with nothing like in her eyes, no soul, a person that cannot be rehabilitated. And a year later, she's now making peace with this person and donating a dog. I mean, I guess I'm not going to shame the ways in which people grieve. Just when you put somebody like that on blast on national TV, one of these people not even having anything to do with the murder. The only thing she was guilty of was dating that person's daughter. And I have my suspicions that um, Cher's mother has some problems with lesbians. 
I don't know. It, I have some I have some problems with Cher's mother in general. It's really easy for people like us to sit here and claim that she's exploiting the spotlight. I don't want to fully hate on the way a parent grieves their child, but I would say from 2011 to 2012 to have this type of 180, especially between how you addressed a girl that wasn't even involved to now how you address the ringleader, the one who orchestrated that premeditated this. I'm very confused by that. And also, my personal opinion is that Melinda Loveless should still be in prison. Oh, absolutely. She should be in prison. I, Her aunt Hackett should still be in prison. I agree with that. Rippy, I need to think about that some more. Lawrence, I don't think, should have ever gone to prison other than, at most, juvenile detention. I Rip- personally think Rippy, too, should have just, like, you know... You think so? Would have went to some sort it's, of it's juvenile facility. tough. So that FBI profile, who I forget her name, she's the host of Deadly Women on Investigation Discovery. Something DeLong. Candace she, DeLong. She, yes, thank you. She stated that her feelings was that Rippy never would have done anything like this and Rippy did these actions out of fear. If that's true, which I'm not really sure heads or tails if it is, but if it is, then I would think that at most it should be juvenile for her. And they really, really hung on to this whole idea of the fact that in Rippy's mugshot, she was smiling. And they exploited the hell yeah, out yeah, of that. Yeah, she's like, why, why, are you, why are you smiling? It was because the cops were trying to make her laugh. Yeah, and she said that, and the uh, parents were like, I don't buy that. And they're just like, are you sorry? Aren't you sorry? And you're like, I am sorry. Well, I don't have to forgive you. I don't care. I don't care. Well, it's like, like what? And like they said, and like I can understand being like that to Hope Rippy. Honestly, I do understand that. What I didn't understand is they pulled that same stuff with Amanda Heverin. And Amanda Heverin said she was sorry. And we can talk about Amanda Heverin. So Amanda Heverin states that she thought the confession about... Cher being killed was a joke and when you're that young hell yeah you're gonna think it's a joke like who thinks that their preteen and teenage friends are actually going to kill somebody yeah I mean even though I knew people who were really violent and very threatening individuals people that carried weapons I didn't think any of these people would actually kill somebody you know And, and when you're that young you just don't think people are capable of that and Think about what it takes to accept that reality. That's very, very hard to do then. You know, you're dragging yourself out of a time in your life where you're encompassed in a lot of innocence. No matter how much stuff you're doing that is adult, for lack of a better term, or how much older you're trying to act than you are, there's still this element of innocence around you that you don't want to leave. And to think that when you're in a safe place, like your school, your neighborhood, your home where you grow up, and to think that murders of especially to that degree are happening right outside your door, that is a hard thing for many people to accept. So this idea to shame Amanda Heverin of one, being a child molester, horrid. Two, that she was culpable in the murder, I don't believe it. Now, is it possible? Is it possible she knew all along? And was complicit. I mean, yeah, sure, there's possibility, but based on everything I've read, the accounts I've heard from different people, it's really only the family saying that Amanda Heverin was involved. The other four girls never, ever mentioned her. No, and I believe her. Like, I I feel bad for her because it's not right to call her molester like that. No, it's not. And and, I mean, think about how long that follows you for. Because on Dr. Phil, they said she was much older than she was when she was dating Shonda. I just think that's incredibly irresponsible 
and it's just so toxic. If I talked to Amanda Heverin today and she told me that this whole ordeal still follows her around and has negatively impacted her life, I would believe it. I, I would too. I would believe it. One thing was really, really annoying about the whole Dr. Phil episode thing. I felt they were trying to infuriate Amanda the whole time. Like Dr. Phil was doing it. He was yeah, egging he, her on. He, and that's what Dr. Phil does. He instigates people who are there unfairly. He strawmans them. And he uses false equivalency fallacy a lot to try to get a reaction. He tries to get an outburst from people because that's ratings. It's ratings to have a young person act crazy because that's what people want to see. Dr. Phil knows this. As a former psychologist, he understands what ethics are and he spits in the face of them. This is not a man that doesn't know better. This is a man that knows better. And for that, I find him all the more disgusting. All right, so before I go on for an hour about my detest for Dr. Phil, let's just kind of leave it at that. This was a very, very sad case, and I don't feel like we said this enough. This was a girl who did nothing wrong, was innocent, just didn't even get to reach the prime of her life, and was just snuffed out due to jealousy in, in such a horrifying way, too. And a lot of people have requested this one. I'm actually trying know. to find out who actually did suggest it so we can give them a we, shout we, out. We've had several people request yeah. this one. Um, since we've basically started the podcast, this one's come up a lot. If you've gotten this far, hey, I appreciate you. And if you're listening on YouTube, I would really love it if you could hit like and subscribe. And, you know, this benefits you, too, because we release videos every Monday and you're not going to miss them, especially if you hit that bell notification. What does it do for us? It boosts us in the algorithm. It's very hard to get into the algorithm if you're a small YouTube channel, but every little bit goes a long way. It compounds over time. So if you could do that for us, that would mean the world to me. And it doesn't cost you a single penny. But Bye. if you do want to go that extra step, and we have many lovely patrons who are doing just that for us, and we love them all. So let's thank them individually. Yeah, so thank you, Eddie, Rowan, Marky, Holly, Ashley, Vu, Anna, Serena, Chloe, Mark, Tara, Sophie, and Karen. Yes, thank you guys so much. And again, our Patreon is patreon.com slash the misery machine. You get our secret episodes. If you're tier two plus, you get monthly postcards. You get access to our secret discord, our Snapchat chats all sorts of great things and also if you're a patron you get a free sticker but you can order the sticker just for one dollar to cover shipping paypal.me slash the misery machine will ship it anywhere in the world and if you take a picture with your sticker or take a picture of where you put your sticker up we will repost it and we will shout you out on our instagram yes we already got a couple that are all over the country so that's really 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 great we like seeing those we currently have roughly 1600 followers on instagram so you know you'd be put in front of audience if that matters to you i know to some people yeah. it does so and if it will help your business you know do it in front of your business yeah exactly we have no problems doing that at all we gladly do that and all it will cost you is one dollar plus you get a really cool sticker that withstands the elements yes I, I know last week we did state i think at the end of our episode that we had really something special coming up this week that had to be put on hold we are waiting for a couple of people to get back to us on really important information if they don't get back to us within one more week we're just gonna have to go ahead and do it and state what the conflicting information is next week at the latest that will be coming yeah it's a very very special local case so i don't have anything else to you i don't either so until next week we love you we love you bye bye